Chapter Fourteen of Douglas Duane. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Douglas Duane by Edgar Fawcett. Chapter Fourteen. Somehow, the moment I had thus left him, calmness came back to me. I tore off my disguises used upon my face a preparation that speedily dispelled its altering stain and wrought one or two rapid changes of apparel the whole proceeding lasted a surprisingly short time every preparation had been made for it a large mirror soon showed me that douglas duane was now undeniably his former physical self without one betraying hint of his past studious masquerade i opened the door as i have said i was very calm again by this time demotte sprang toward me the instant that he saw and recognized me douglas he exclaimed grasping my hand and shaking it with great warmth has anything unfortunate happened to you you look pale my dear fellow why did you send for me in that curious style there were reasons floyd i answered come into the next room please and i led the way thither a curtain hid my one chief apparatus from sight, but in a general manner the chamber looked like a laboratory. Death must be inflicted on this man in a peculiar way. I had made ready a certain chair, and had connected it with wires to a battery of great power, and one capable of easily killing by shock. In my future essay the character of this battery will be carefully described, and the extraordinary difference between the electromotive vigour which I had compelled it to generate and that of the bichromate cell, the delorier, the peroxide of manganese, the leclanchet, the grenet, the hyton, or any of all the numerous cells now in vogue. The instant that Demotte had seated himself in the chair, I had only to take a few steps back of him, and to place my hand on a comparatively small instrument, set well within the shadow of a large cabinet, for the destructive power to leap through every fibre of him, with the celerity of a lightning stroke the chair was of metal but it had been so painted and adorned as to resemble the rest of the furniture in the room i paused just before the fatal chair and pointed to it will you sit please i said but douglas he exclaimed still standing and catching at my arm with a world of friendly inquiry in his gaze tell me i will tell you everything very soon i interrupted gently disengaging myself from his hold but grant me a little time just a little time i beg of you and then with a quiet vehemence i pushed him down into the chair placing a hand on each of his shoulders after he was seated i stooped over him smiling you shall learn everything soon i went on promise me to just sit there and wait my announcements he glanced up at me breaking into a laugh he caught my hand and pressed it. Dear Douglas, he said, I will wait. I'll do anything you say. I'm so glad to see you again. I got my hand away from his. Those words, every one of them, were like separate stabs from a dagger. I moved behind his chair. I did not want him to see if my face was working. I felt horribly agitated again, but it was a new sort of agitation. I could control myself so long as I was beyond the chance of encountering the frank look from his genial blue eyes, with their old, well-known feminine sparkle. Very well, I managed to answer. 
when I was once quite in the rear of his chair. Only sit there for a moment, and I will come back to you, Floyd, and tell you everything. The death that I meant him to die was as painless a one as human conjecture could devise. It would be a precipitate and deadly paralysis of all vital functions. He would never know what had harmed him. There would be no wound, no lesion of any sort, that the keenest search of surgery could discover. The leaping death fluid would deprive him of life, tearing from every atom of his organization the wondrous principle which had fed it. His residual body would present, after the extinction of vitality, no one special point where it had been enfeebled by violence. The physical man would remain precisely as uninjured as before my new marvellous agent of extermination had struck its framework. If I had had a doubt to the contrary of this fact, I should have quailed before a fresh warning of failure. But I had no such doubt. I knew too well the unmatched nature of the force I had been fated to discover. Just as you please, he called out to me laughingly, and those were his last words. I had already reached the instrument with which the dread mediums communicated. I looked round once to see if he still sat there. Then I grasped the small brass knob that must mean death to him. I waited for perhaps ten seconds. No least sound came to me. Then I turned and went to where he sat. His head had fallen backward, so that the white bulging line of his throat seemed to flare at me. His eyes were still open. I knelt and put my ear against his heart. Not the faintest throb. He was dead. And now it was my turn to die. I hurried to the curtain and draped my precious apparatus. I flung the curtain aside. The whole complex thing glared to me with a dumb, spiteful challenge. Had I the courage to go on with my wild work? It seemed to ask. Yes, my hot intent responded. The empty tank stared up at me with its void like a dull eye of a scoffing demon. I seized the baleful drugs that stood in great jars near it and poured them within its hollow. As I emptied the last jugful, a sound came to me from the commingling acids like the hiss of a hundred interwriting adders. I now sprang to the corpse of Demotte. I stripped it with impetuous speed. I made it still more molecularly sensitive in a way I cannot now explain. And then I lifted it in my arms without thought of its weight into the receptacle previously made for it. There he lay, disrobed and dead. I closed the curving glass lid over him. Then I paused for a few seconds. All was ready. I had only to take the last awful step. I dared not meditate upon it, and so suddenly tore my garments from my body, until I presently stood as denuded as was the corpse of Demotte. The tank of seething liquid, deep and wide, a horrible bath of death, was now waiting for me. I stood before it, and looked upon its surface, where coils and hisses yet told of the horrid agencies I had convened. Oh, what fools these chemists are, I remember thinking. With all their innumerable compounds, they have never hit upon this one mightily destructive combination. Then I thought of Millicent. I do not believe that I hesitated at all after I had made her image clear within my mind. Her name, if I am not in error, was uttered by me as I leaped to the ledge of the tank and then dropped downwards, with its virulent tide completely submerging me. 
Strangely enough, after what seemed a short interval of frightful pain, I had no sensation of death. I seemed to be flying through infinite space, and yet my feeling of relief was exquisite. I had suffered untold tortures, but I was now entirely at peace. The driving and rending, the bursting and shattering of my brain had ended. Immeasurable visions, as of enormous planets swinging round enormous suns, and seen with an eye to which the eye of mortal sight is contemptibly feeble, had rushed upon me. It was with me as though space had laid bare all her ethereal strongholds of glittering secrets. The feeling of disembodiment, of volatility, of splendid untrammelled liberty, was a rapture no language can portray. Time, as I now deduce, could no longer either measure or concern my transports. I had passed completely out of time. It did not then occur to me, how should it, that I was still I, and that the vital principle which I had so firmly believed an unconscious force when freed from material bonds could not only be and think, but could be sublimely and think miraculously. And yet I was aware that I still lived, a naked soul, an essence of deathless intelligence and glorious capacity. The answers to a thousand mysteries of life, of nature, of science, of instinct, of religion, of even deity itself, shone before me in luminous and magnificent revelation. The problem of human suffering was no more a vexation. It had become lucidly solved. The whence, the whither, and the wherefore, both of mankind and of all creation, those riddles which have tortured philosophy for so many futile centuries, were as plain to my comprehension as the radiant wheeling spheres which I gazed on and were plain to my rarefied and emancipated vision. The universe had eloquently and irrefutably explained itself. My past scepticism, pessimism, and negation had shriveled to nothingness, as dry leaves would do if dropped into the white-blinding fire of a furnace. But existence was not merely a divine expansion, possession and acceptance of the loftiest spiritual joy. It was more. It was a sacred fellowship with eternity, and eternity, like matter, beamed on me denuded of the least conceivable vagueness. Every perished or sentient creed of the world stretched before me as links in one immense necessary chain of circumstances. I saw atheism as it had been, and as it still was, and neither condemned nor approved it. I simply understood its cause, its use, its meaning. I saw the long, passionate drama of inextinguishable faith enacted throughout mankind here on my own little planet, and what an atom our earth looked among the grandeurs of other millions of globes. And neither pitied martyrdom nor regretted persecution. Both were effects and events of a development whose origin and terminus transcended inquiry. But abruptly, in the midst of this noble and seraphic exaltation, this piercing and triumphant omniscience, a shade, a chill, a blight fell upon me. I cannot put into words what I felt. It was not so much a realization of my freed and immortal personality being unfit for the exquisite happiness I had thus far enjoyed, as it was a burdening, horrifying conception of my having deliberately flung aside and even murdered impulses of right in my past life by conniving at the death of a fellow-creature. 
all the unutterable beauty and brilliance of my encompassments took suddenly an accusative aspect the lights of the great lovely stars yet burned all about me and shapes of untold harmony and grace yet floated on every side of me but a darkness or something that i can call by no other name than darkness though it was not what we mean on earth by that word had crept with a fleet and fearful stealth between my perceptions and the enchanting prospects i observed it seemed to me that a wild cry of supplication and of anguish now broke from my lips my sin my sin i moaned or seemed to moan and at the same time the blackness of that sin grew a close encircling gloom and horror the effulgence and majesty of my surroundings faded the universality of knowledge which had hit my mind died into an ignorance that left only a pathos of dim memory behind it faint as the trail of a flying meteor on the dusky paths of heaven and then came night dense weightsome ineludable befogging thought that seemed to flicker and struggle like its blown flame of a candle before extinction leaps upon it i awoke with a sense of agonizing suffocation that other torture had been no worse than this i was conscious of the glass that enveloped me i was even aware of the iron hammer nearby yet i could not bring myself to make use of it for what seemed an interminable period at last with an effort that was like the breaking of some stout fetter i clutched it gave an upward swing and felt instantly the relief that this destructive blow afforded i was lucky enough to get clear of my curious splintery cage without any awkward hurt i was soon standing in the centre of the apartment giddy somewhat tremulous but with a speedily augmenting conviction of my own vigour remembrances of the delights and wonders i had just known were still floating through my brain like the fragments of a thousand ruined pictures at the moment i had taken my suicidal plunge i had glanced at a clock on the opposite wall i now glanced again at this clock exactly two minutes had passed a sharp cry of incredulity broke upon me the interval had been more like a year as i approached a mirror and gazed upon what was now my new physical self i shivered from the assault of a consternation and an affright for which no innate certainty of what i was about to behold had served adequately to prepare me but as i continued regarding the image in the mirror this unforeseen discomfort gradually passed away though another more severe and not at all transient took the place of it i had become floyd demotte in every outward seeming every trait of lineaments and of figure but i was still myself the prodigious experiment had succeeded and yet its very success had flung at me a gibe of failure i had mastered one superhuman task only to find another of inexplicable sort to baffle and mock me for ever i had disproved materialism but i had disproved it in my very effort to confirm it i had sought the verification of a fixed belief in the dumb blind irresponsibility of what hundreds of seers had claimed to be angelically opposite and now cowering i saw the cheerless immensity of my mistake but retraction was impossible if the soul was godlike gods could fall and mine had irretrievably fallen i had not merely stained my spirit with dreadful crime i had wedded it indissolubly 
to the fleshly and palpable evidence of that crime itself. I must henceforth bear a brand worse than that of Cain, for he merely carried, as the legend tells, a badge and a memento of remorse. But I must live through the remainder of my days as an incarnate remorse, a murderer, prisoned till death, within the shape of the being he had murdered. I staggered backward from the mirror, whose coldly unflinching testimony had now grown like the most maddening of jeers. I wrapped my shivering form in a garment that lay near at hand, and flung myself, palsied with horror, upon the floor of the chamber. And this, I thought, is the summit of my triumph, the comble de bonheur of my undaunted aims. Ah, ghastliest of expiations! The vulture that gnawed at the vitals of Prometheus was but the sting of a gadfly compared with such unremitting torment as mine. My very shadow will be a perpetual accusation. It will be his shadow no less than mine, and it will dog me with inexterminable persistence, with spectral and loathsome patience till I die. At night I will lie awake in my bed and feel my flesh creep with the atrocious thought of how his corpse clasps me, engirds me, weighs upon me, his own words of warning, spoken long ago in my laboratory, would recur to me in mockery and in vengeance. Perhaps my lips, his lips, would repeat them amid torturing dreams. Men of supreme ability like yourself are sometimes entrapped and betrayed by their own powers. He prophesied, then, that such entrapment and betrayal might be madness, and I resented his very suggestion as an insolence. But if madness were to come now, it might deteriorate and brutalize intellect, and thus deaden suffering. What other help can there be for me? Suicide? No man who has known and seen what I have known and seen beyond death would ever voluntarily seek death. He who kills himself always takes the chances of an eternal sleep. For in that sleep of death what dreams may come must give us pause. How clear a truth the poet sage struck there, no, nothing remains to me now but life, and that life a long, slow, inexorable hell. Thus I mused when suddenly a bright spark of comfort dawned upon me. I remembered Millicent. I remembered why this black sin had steeped me in its guilt. I had forgotten her till now, and now a passionate surge of recollection seemed pulsing through brain and blood alike. I rose, thrilling with this new hope of comparative peace. If I still had the soul of Douglas Duane, I could still love with his unaltered love. I would go to her at once, as soon as I could hide or destroy every tangible record of what had lately occurred within these chambers. A few traces must remain. Let them. They would not be compromising. How could they be? No one had seen Floyd Demotte enter here with his perished companion. I would soon slip out unnoticed, into the busy turmoil of Broadway. The stimulus which now supported and fortified me was unutterably welcome. I drank, during the process of assuming Floyd Demotte's garments, one or two glasses of a rare old wine with which I had provided myself. The draughts acted cordially and soothingly upon me. I grew able to think like my former self and to exert all my natural faculties of caution. I had a sudden dread lest my voice might be different from Demotte's, and spoke several sentences aloud in order to test the dissimilarity, if they existed. 
and here I made a singular discovery. The voice was his, just as of old, since it issued from the same throat, the same lungs, but occasionally it rang with a new and uncharacteristic note. Every now and then it sounded like my own former voice, but I found that this eccentricity was one greatly, if not entirely, under my own control. At the same time, I presently assured myself with regard to my handwriting. The general formation of the letters undoubtedly was de Mott's, but sometimes, for a word or a whole sentence, it would lean toward a resemblance of my own. Here, however, the variation was much less apparent than in my voice, for I had always had a handwriting that in no marked way differed from de Mott's, and these lapses of which I speak would probably have been noticeable to few other eyes than mine. As for writing continuously in the hand of Douglas Duane, I doubt if I could have done so, except with extreme effort, nor could I, for the same recondite cause, have used habitually my previous voice. What took hold of me, thus incidentally, was from remoter physics sway. What governed me in all common daily acts must spring directly from the conditions of that body and temperament in which I had found such eerie and reluctant habitation. When at last all was ready for the consummation of my audacious work, for the bringing myself face to face with her whose love would be the rich reward of my pain and the holy lenative of my future compunction, I went forth into the great noisy thoroughfare. I felt my courage quail as I began this fateful journey, and yet I clinched my teeth together and swore that I would be tranquil as ice. Why should I not be? I had nothing to fear as disclosure, as overthrow. I had everything to gain as recompense, consolation, alleviation, and reanimated hope. It was now late in the afternoon. The treacherous December day, recently so serene, had undergone the most gusty and rigorous change. The brief winter term of sunshine would soon fade, and leave biting blasts behind it. The very roll of the wheels on the stones had taken a harsher and more strident clatter as they smote my ears through the dry, frigid, yet whirling air. People passed me with bowed heads and hurrying steps as I crossed eastward to the home of Millicent, to my home. A fancy beset me that they were all shunning me with one common instinctive avoidance, as something leprous and repugnant. During my walk I chanced to note the window of a small shop in one of the transverse streets not far from Broadway. It was filled with pistols of various forms and sizes. I had never carried firearms, hating the practice as I hated them. But now a thought, a fear, perhaps a prognostication, made me pause and fascinatedly scan the exhibited weapons. Suicide must at any time be a frightful alternative now, and yet if Millicent, I did not dare to finish the hated speculation. But soon afterward I went into the little shop and purchased one of the pistols. Then I moved once more toward my destination. The sword-like gales were sweeping through the streets with a still wilder impetus. They struck straight in my face. They had the effect of buffeting me back in my course, or striving to do it, and the long, bleak croons of sound that they made in the housetops under the pallor of the dimming skies were like voices of elfing dissuasion. But I bore steadily onward. Not to do so, at this one most pregnant and emphatic hour of my whole insolent career, would have been to die in preference, deeply as I had grown to abominate the recourse of death. I presently reached the house. I did not ring. Why should I? 
the latch-key that he had always used was here in my pocket i entered quietly as he had always done end of chapter 14